You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 36. Greetings, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find my work at metamorecity.com and chrislester.org. This is the show where I keep you up to date on my writing endeavors and share installments of my new fiction with you. But before we get to today's fiction, it's time for a job hunt update. Yeah, I did a job. I got nothing but trouble since I did it, not to mention more than a few unkind words as regard to my character, so let me make this abundantly clear. I do the job. And then I get paid. As most of you know by now, I've been out of work since the beginning of the year and working hard on finding something with long-term career potential. After investigating our options, Mel and I have decided to focus our search primarily on the area around Madison, Wisconsin. There are a lot of jobs in scientific and medical research out there, so it's probably our best bet for finding something quickly. As a bonus, it would also be within a day's drive of my parents' and two days' drive of Melanie's, which is important to us as our folks are getting older. And, since one of our favorite things is getting out into nature, it puts us within a day's drive of a bunch of cool parks that we would otherwise have a hard time getting to. I will, of course, keep you all posted on further developments. On the short-term survival front, a bunch of you have already answered the call and made pledges to support us on Patreon. Big thank yous go out to all of our new first-time patrons. There are so many of you that I can't name you all here— but you can see a list on the Patreon page at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. And a super huge thank you to all the existing patrons who've increased their pledge levels to help us through this tough time, especially Deborah Peterson, Rosemary Tizzledown, and Guardian Lion, all of whom have joined the Producers Club with pledges of $25 a month or higher. If you haven't made a pledge yet, and you enjoy the content that I bring you on this show, please go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. You'll get bonus stories, bonus artwork, author commentaries, and previews of upcoming stories. There's no long-term commitment. You can cancel or adjust your pledge levels at any time. But if you can spare a few extra bucks to help us out during these next few months, it would make a big difference for me and Melanie. Again, that's patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Today I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 6 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you haven't caught up with the story yet, go back to Episode 24 to hear it from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City police detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf have been press-ganged into service to Count Xavier Halloway, the Minister of Imperial Intelligence. Halloway wants the detectives to find his missing daughter— the notorious socialite Mysteria Halloway, who disappeared several weeks ago. Kate and David have discovered that Misty was involved in some kind of risky adventure with several of her longtime friends, including Ezekiel Kapler, whose father controls the mysterious Telvari Rift Zone. One of Kapler's employees, a shuttle pilot named Bernard Travers, who had been working at the Rift Zone, recently turned up dead on the street of Metamore City, apparently burned from the inside out by some kind of magical power. The wizard Artax, proprietor of the Spells for You magic shop, covered up the circumstances of the pilot's death, because he fears that the city's magical elite would be willing to kill to possess the power that destroyed him. He agreed to help Kate and David find Misty Halloway, 
but begged them not to investigate any further into Travers's death. When we last saw Artax, he was communicating with some kind of magical entity, which is aware of Kate and David's investigation and deeply suspicious of Halloway. Artax urged the entity to talk to Kate. You have to give her something to work with, he said, or you're all done for. But what the entity was, and whether it will heed Artax's advice, remains a mystery. Things Unseen A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read by Chris Lester Chapter 6 Continued In what was becoming a rare occurrence, Kate made it home in time for supper. She pulled into the first-level parking garage for the Serenity Arms apartment complex, an unassuming brownstone fascia built into the side of Hughes Tower. Hughes was one of the oldest and least renovated towers in Precinct 13. This part of the building dated back more than 150 years, a rarity in a city that was constantly reinventing itself, and there was nothing on the outside to suggest that it was anything more than a tidy, well-kept relic in the low-rent end of town. If anyone noticed that the complex extended below the first skyway level, all the way down to the street, their opinion of it would likely sink even further. That was just fine with Kate. Serenity Arms was the best-kept secret on the rental market, but those who really needed a sanctuary, and needed it cheap, always seemed to find it just when they had to. Inside, the building was decorated in the warm, lush style of about 80 years ago. The carpets were deep red, The wainscoting was made of cherry wood, and wooden ceiling fans hung overhead in most of the rooms. Libraries full of old books could be found at every fifth story, and were open for the residents' use. Parlors held antique furniture, all in beautiful condition, and fireplaces that could produce very satisfactory gas-powered flames during the winter. Kate's own apartment had a gorgeous four-poster canopy bed that was well over a hundred years old, and easily big enough to sleep three people comfortably. Everything was immaculately kept and extraordinarily well-maintained. The place was old, and in many ways it showed. The water pressure was low, it was hard to keep warm in winter, the air conditioning was anemic in summer, and the staff worked constantly on renovations and repairs. But Serenity Arms was a place that was loved and respected, both by the tenants and by the staff. Nowhere was this more evident than in the dining hall. Isri Fallon, the proprietress of Serenity Arms, was an amateur chef and a culinary enthusiast. Some might call her a foodie, but that failed to convey both the extent of her knowledge and the depth of her passion on the subject. Miss Fallon loved food, loved eating it, learning about it, making it, and especially serving it to others. She had a nurturing instinct that many people found astonishing, and could often be seen ushering in waifs from the street to warm them up with a bowl of soup and a few slices of freshly baked bread. Every night, she and her staff served supper, promptly at six o'clock, and any of her tenants were welcome to join them. Donations to the food budget were gently encouraged, for those who could afford them, but Miss Fallon never turned anyone away as long as there was more to eat. The dining hall was enormous, and there was always room at the table. And if there wasn't, one of the staff would get up to make room. 
The Serenity Arms nightly supper was one of the most generous, caring, and human things that Kate had ever seen anyone do, anywhere. It was made all the more amazing by the fact that neither Miss Fallon nor any of her staff were, in fact, human. Miss Fallon was a succubus, a daedra who had deserted her own kind and chosen to make a life among mortals. Most of her maids and kitchen helpers were also succubi, and several of them were her own daughters, granddaughters, or great-granddaughters. The other female staffers were tieflings, human-daedra hybrids. Technically, succubi were hybrids as well, as they had a human soul fused with their demonic essence, but tieflings were mortal, and succubi were not. The male groundskeepers included a few incubi, the succubi's male counterparts, as well as two tieflings and a couple of lutins, hardy, green-skinned humanoids from the giant downs to the north. Not all of them were considered monsters or outsiders by Lightbringer standards, but their inhuman natures were enough to send close-minded people running for the exits. Kate had been a little close-minded herself once, but she had also been desperate for a place to live, and Miss Fallon had offered her the sort of place she dreamed of at a price she could afford on a cop's salary. She'd been nervous at first to be living in an apartment full of people who fed on sexual energy to survive, but over time Miss Fallon and the others had shown her their human side. Kate had repeatedly stood up for Miss Fallon, and Miss Fallon repaid her trust by being a tireless defender of the downtrodden. She was old and powerful for a succubus, and her nightly patrols had carved out a safe zone on street level, where neither gangs nor hunters would dare to operate. It was a very medieval sort of arrangement— a powerful lord in residence, with vassals sworn beneath her and a domain secured through force of arms. But on the street, it was the most advanced sort of civilization one could hope for. Technically, she was a vigilante, but Kate and the other cops looked the other way, knowing that she had accomplished what they never could. Boisterous laughter and cheerfully loud voices sounded from the dining hall as Kate approached. Grinning, she strode through the door and gave the room a wave. "'Hey, everybody!' A chorus of greetings rose up from the assembled throng. Some people were already seated, while others bustled about filling glasses and bringing out platters of food. It looked like the main course was roast pork with an herbal rub of some kind. Two massive pork loins had been laid out on long serving trays, neatly sliced into evenly sized portions. Heaping bowls of roast potatoes came out to join them, along with homemade applesauce, crisp green salads, steamed vegetables, and scratch-made biscuits. Large hot pots filled with fresh-brewed coffee and tea stood on a side table, next to a long row of porcelain mugs, all of them over fifty years old, each one decorated beautifully in its own unique design. A golden brown pudding of some kind sat on another side table in the corner of the room, waiting to be brought forward for dessert. Kate! Kate turned around and saw her landlady coming into the room behind her. Miss Fallon wore a burgundy silk brocade blouse with a stand-up collar and long sleeves, making her look like a Hanese noblewoman. The conservative outfit had been tailored perfectly to her body, displaying her lush curves without exposing even a hint of skin. So glad you can join us this evening. The succubus held her arms open in greeting. Kate placed her forearms atop Miss Fallon's, gripping them just below the elbows in the ancient gesture of friendship. So am I, she said. I can really use a break right now. Miss Fallon tilted her head slightly, one thin dark eyebrow raised in inquiry. Trouble at work, dearie. Any way I can help? 
Kate pondered that for a moment. Maybe, she said thoughtfully. She forced a smile, but not now, after. Miss Fallon inclined her head, a gesture too elegant to be called a nod. Then have a seat and be welcome. Kate sat down between Sylvia, one of Miss Fallon's hostesses, and Damien, the head groundskeeper. They both greeted her warmly, then quickly recruited her into a friendly debate over the upcoming Screen Actors Awards. For the next hour, Kate gave no thought to dead bodies or the intrigues of noble houses. She was, in every sense that mattered, home. After a lingering conversation that stretched over coffee and two helpings of dessert, Sylvia and Damien finally excused themselves and returned to their duties. Kate grabbed her mug in one hand and a stack of dirty plates in the other and headed back to the kitchen, where Miss Fallon was helping Millie with the dishes. Kate rolled up her sleeves and joined them, dipping the clean dishes in a sanitizing rinse and stacking them in the racks to dry. So, tell me about this problem at work, Miss Fallon said. Kate glanced briefly at Millie, but the young tiefling woman was as trustworthy as anyone on Miss Fallon's staff. She told them about Bernard Travers and the strange, horrifying way that Morgan and Takahashi said he died. I don't know where to begin with something like this, she said. I mean, I've studied a lot of magic, and I can't even tell what kind of spell fields were involved. She didn't mention what Artax had told her, that Travers had not been killed by mortal wizardry. By his own confession, the old man was hiding something, and she didn't want to prejudice Miss Fallon with information that might be suspect anyway. Miss Fallon gave her a sidelong glance. Go on. Well, like David said, it's not that hard to kill somebody with magic. If you just want them dead, there are plenty more efficient ways to do it. This wasn't just lethal, it was sadistic. Brutal. You'd have to be seriously vicious to even imagine a spell like this, much less have the will to cast it. A small, knowing smile played across Miss Fallon's lips. And when you want to know about sadistic, vicious magic, you think of me? She spoke the words matter-of-factly, without heat, but Kate still blushed a little. I didn't mean it that way. But you served in the Dreamlands War for a long time before you got out, and I figure any fight between Celestials and Daedra is going to get... personal. Ms. Fallon looked up, but her eyes were distant, haunted, to say the least. Right. So I was wondering if you might have seen something like this before, something that could give us a hint about who killed Travers and why. For a long moment, the only sounds were the slosh of water and the clink of dishes against the racks. Do you have a copy of the autopsy report? Ms. Fallon asked. In my backpack. I'll get it to you after we're done here. I can't promise anything, the succubus warned her, but I'll take a look. If I see anything that might help you, I will let you know. Thanks, Miss Fallon. They finished the dishes in silence. Miss Fallon's mind seemed weighted down with dark memories, and neither Millie nor Kate felt comfortable disturbing her reverie. When they were done, Kate handed over the autopsy report with a small bow of thanks, then went up to her apartment. A package waited in front of her door, a cardboard box half a meter square and taller than it was wide. Kate eyed it with immediate suspicion. She hadn't ordered anything recently. She brought up her aura sight and examined the flow of mana around the box. She saw no active enchantments on the box, which meant it hadn't been booby-trapped by any magical means. 
a current of life-aspected mana circulated inside the box. Something was alive in there. She crouched next to the box, listening intently. She heard no scratching or shuffling noises, and there were no air holes in the box, so the chances were good that it was a plant of some kind. Warily, she lifted the box, judging its weight. It didn't seem heavy enough to contain mundane explosives. She unlocked the door and brought the box inside, setting it on her kitchen counter. She took a closer look at the shipping label. Her name and address were listed there, along with instructions for same-day delivery. She went over to her WorldNet terminal and looked up the box's tracking number. It had been dropped off at one of the shipping company's local offices in Metamore City, but there was no information about the sender. Kate went back to the box, glaring at it with her hands on her hips. Well, you're a nice little mystery, aren't you? she muttered. She took out one of her knives and sliced open the packing tape, then carefully peeled up one flap of the box. A familiar floral scent immediately touched her nose. What the? Kate quickly opened the box and dug through the crumpled packing paper until her fingers touched on damp soil. She found the edges of the pot and drew it out, revealing a nocturna's lily with three large blue and white blossoms. Based on the prices she had seen at alchemical supply shops, she estimated its worth at over a hundred marks. Okay, she murmured. Think like a detective, Kate. Look for the clues. Before doing anything else, she pulled on a pair of nitrile gloves, not wanting to obscure any possible evidence. She searched through the box, pulled out all the packing paper, folded it neatly, and put it inside a zip-top bag. The pot held a small plastic card holder with a slip of folded notepaper attached. The paper had Kate's own name, written in a bold, flowing script, but nothing else. The plant itself seemed healthy, apparently unbothered by its confinement. Given that it had only been shipped this morning, Kate supposed it hadn't been in the box for long. She carried it into her bedroom and set it in the window sill. I can't promise you'll get much in the way of sunlight down here, she told the plant. Of course, you're a jungle plant, so you're probably used to that. She sat down on the edge of her bed and regarded the plant thoughtfully. If you're supposed to be a message, you're kind of vague, she complained. Whoever sent you, they're going to have to give me a little more to work with. Five seconds later, her house phone rang. Kate looked at the caller ID, but it was an unlisted number. She pushed the button to pick up. This is Kate? A woman's voice answered. Good evening, detective. You have received the plant, I take it. Kate sat up a bit straighter, thinking fast. Yeah. Let me guess, you're using a tracking spell to follow it. That kind of divination wouldn't show up as an active enchantment on the plant itself, though a really skilled and sensitive wizard would be able to spot the signs that the plant was being watched. Kate wasn't quite that good yet. Something like that, the voice said. I want to meet with you, detective, but you're being watched. Your new master doesn't entirely trust you. New master? She must mean Count Halloway. Why do you want to meet me? I have information you need, the voice said. Come meet with me tonight. The plant will tell you where to go. Do you understand? Kate eyed the slip of paper with her name on it. I think so. It may take me a little while to work things out. I can be patient, the voice said. Be careful. Make sure you aren't followed. I understand, Kate said. What about my partner? 
He is being watched as well, the voice said. Discretion, detective. There was a click, and the line went dead. Kate turned off the phone and took the slip of paper into the spare bedroom that she used as her spellcasting lab. She set the paper on her workbench, a heavy, slate-topped table about a meter wide, and sat down on the stool in front of it. She grabbed a piece of chalk and drew a circle around the paper, then closed her eyes and consulted her memory. There were many possible uses for names in magic. A thing's name was intimately tied to its identity, its inner nature. Speaking your name aloud created a sympathetic link between you and the listener, which a spellcaster could use in turn to influence you in a variety of ways. The threat of name magic was serious enough that entire cultural institutions had been created to protect against it. Most religious groups practiced rites of consecration, in which the parents formally named the child, usually with a different name from that listed on the public birth records. This true name was kept secret, while the less magically powerful use name was used for all public and legal applications. The division between true names and use names had another use, though, beyond acting as magical insulation. Wizards had discovered how to use name magic for a kind of public-key cryptography. A wizard could encode a message with a person's use name, which the recipient could only decode by using their true name. This arcane code was virtually unbreakable, and wizards had been using the name encryption spell for decades to protect arcane messages. Kate had never had much use for name encryption, but she and her friends had played around with it in university. She ran her mind back over the ritual, calling forth the details from the deep recesses of her memory. She carefully rehearsed the spell from start to finish before opening her eyes and beginning the ritual. She drew out a network of glyphs around the paper, then connected them to a smaller circle close to herself. She pulled a finger stick from her supply cabinet and pricked the tip of her finger, then squeezed three drops of blood into the smaller circle. As each drop fell, she spoke her true name, a long collection of liquid syllables that sounded elvish but didn't have any sort of deeper meaning behind it. Her true name represented her, not anyone or anything else. After the third drop landed, Kate drew out her arthana and inscribed a sigil in the air over the paper. Nortale nocerno, she said, and released the spell. The latent magic hidden in the paper revealed itself in lines of fiery red script, as if being written by an unseen hand. Come to the Hedonist Temple at 4-9275 North Teffen Street. Go to the priest's entrance in the back and knock four times. The priest on duty will bring you to me. Come alone. Your safe passage is guaranteed. Lady Mysteria Halloway And that's the end of Chapter 6. Now that Misty has made contact, what will she say to Kate? Why has she gone to such great lengths to stay hidden? And if Kate herself is being spied on, what will she do about it? Find out next week. You've been waiting for this for a long time, and I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to saying it. Here's your weekly writing report.
I wrote 6,444 words this week over the course of 11.5 hours for an average writing speed of 560 words per hour. I started writing again on Sunday, January 17th, and I wrote on six out of seven days this week. I skipped Friday so that I could make some corrections to the Making the Cut ebook. Looking back at the month of December, I wrote 14,852 words over the course of 18 days, for an average word count of 825 words per day. That's the second highest words per day I've recorded after this past November. I spent 18.25 hours writing that month, which is the lowest total since I started this show. On the other hand, I did get Making the Cut and Urban Legends finished and released, which took about 28 hours of production time. Compared to November, my word count decreased by 55%, and my writing time decreased by 54%. I spent most of Friday and Saturday rereading the 45,000 words I had already written on this book. After rereading the first 13 chapters, I'm feeling much better about the story and where it's headed. This is definitely going to be a big one, though. If it comes out to less than 200,000 words, I'll be very surprised. This past week, I released my bonus story for January on the Patreon feed. It's called Missing Pieces, and it's a Metamore City story. If you're a Patreon patron, you can find it on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester under the Creator Posts tab. I hope you enjoy it. And now, the feedback. Hi Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa with feedback on Chapter 5 of Things Unseen, a bit belatedly, but I did appreciate a few things in this chapter, so I wanted to comment on them. One, learning stuff, information, yay! I'm liking the flow and speed of the reveals that we're getting, and it's just getting more and more interesting, especially bringing in the things that Artax said, and, you know, his interaction with the entity, talking to him through the plant. That's a big deal. Also, of course, the fact that we finally get the, like, official connection between the two cases, which I kind of knew was coming. I feel like it's not supposed to be some big surprise. (laughs) Yeah, so that was cool. And also it was cool to see Artax again. But the big thing that I liked in this chapter, at least in terms of just kind of composition, because I keep thinking about like the craft of writing, is the use of humor. I think that humor in a serious narrative, even in one that would be even more like serious and like, you know, end of the world, everything. The use of humor, I think, is important. I don't think it's absolutely mandatory, but I do think that I tend to enjoy stories where there's at least small blips of amusing things over stories that don't have that at all. I mean, I think it would be not necessarily staying true to your characters if they didn't occasionally say something funny. You know, like with Morgan, with the cadaver was hilarious. And the little exchange about the uh, little bird told me that was fun. And I feel like those kinds of things are important even in a serious story. And I'm not trying to say like that this story is supposed to be like serious business. It just kind of reminded me about how much I appreciate humor in honestly really kind of any book. So, you know, that's a personal preference for me. But I do think that there is something to it when it comes to If you have characters who kind of crack jokes or do goofy things, it doesn't make sense to not have them do it. 
other than that, I'm just really looking forward to continuing to watch things unravel, be unveiled, so to speak. So I will keep listening and I will keep calling in. And I definitely wish you the best with the job hunt and the moving and all of that stuff. So take care. Thank you, Sarah. I agree with you on the importance of humor in dramatic narrative. That's something that many of my favorite storytellers do well. Jim Butcher, Orson Scott Card, J. Daniel Sawyer, and Joss Whedon all spring to mind. None of them are quote-unquote comedic writers, but they all make good use of humor and levity to keep you connected to their characters and give you those emotional breaks in their otherwise serious storytelling. Incidentally, I think that's something that Star Wars Episode Seven did very well, too which is one of the reasons why I think it's so popular. Thanks for calling in. Some great activity on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group this week. Nobilis wrote, A couple of thoughts coming from this week's feedback. I understand why Metamore City is so populous, but why is it so dense? Given that it's more difficult to go up than it is to go south, why are the buildings so tall? And what do Metamore's suburbs look like? Do the skyscrapers suddenly stop, the way they do in cities like Manhattan, making an island of towers and a sea of much more moderate buildings? Or do they taper off, like in Hong Kong? This sparked a bunch of interesting discussion, which you can read over in the Facebook group. I mentioned that the Metamore City Towers were mostly the result of an arms race between the different noble houses, all of whom have been competing to have the tallest, flashiest, fanciest towers within the limited confines of their ancestral territories. That prompted Nobilis to share the story of this Italian town where the rival noble families had done something very similar back in the Middle Ages. It's very cool, and you should definitely check it out. I'll put the link in the show notes. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. Then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow metamorphs, check out the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more stories fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.